every successful person got there by going through tough times. Success is a hard-ass teacher who likes to knock you around along that journey. You know, it takes real guts to not give up and keep going. We'll hear stories about failures and how these leaders flip the script to create success. I'm John Schultz. Join me and let's discover how success is never really overnight. So uh, welcome to the John Schultz podcast. We have a, a great guest, Jeremy Utley. Look at him. He looks so good. Look, he's got his books behind him. I'm ready. The Idea Flow poster. I'm ready for talk anything. talk about. Uh, so we're really excited. He's the co-author of Idea Flow, which is the only business metric that matters. And we're going to talk about that. And I love that concept. He's a Stanford adjunct professor, popular classes, are leading disruptive innovation, D-leadership, right? D-school, you call it? D-school, That's right. right? The design school, that's right. Design school, which focuses on creating real-world impact with the tools and design and innovation, which today, at the pace it's moving, we need that. Keynote speaker on innovation. His uh, podcast is Paint and Pipette, which shines a spotlight on underappreciated creators and entrepreneurs. Aren't we all under uh, underappreciated? Can't that... Be for everyone, I think. Yeah, it, uh, Jeremy. Can. it well, we we all we we underappreciate ourselves. That's for sure. They're, they're, well, that's probably the worst thing, right? Uh, and you're a self-described recovering investment analyst and management consultant. I like that. Yeah, recovering MBA. That's right. There you go. You spent time <laughs> working abroad, including a startup in India, and you have an MBA at Stanford Business, a BBS in finance, uh, at the University of Texas at Austin. Wow. So welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, John. All right. So my first question, because I, I know you're, uh, you're, you'll be able to answer this in, in, a, in a positive, fun way, is can work be fun? Can work actually be fun? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that, you know, from my upbringing, at least work was work, which it was specifically not fun, right? That's why we call it work, right? And that was, uh, it created a very toxic relationship for me with my profession, because I didn't expect to enjoy it. And I actually kind of I was resigned to dislike work for a long time. And the fact that, for example, in finance, every single class, I graduated top of my class, I'm not bragging, but uh, which is, <laughs> there's a point here, number one out of whatever 700 and something in finance, there was every single class I took in the progression. I thought, no, I hate this class more than any class I've ever taken. Right. Wow. Which is to say you can be good at something and dislike it. Right. And when, when ability displaces interest or, or, or um, is emphasized beyond interest, it's like the Ricky Williams syndrome, right? You got this guy who's an amazing football player. The only problem is he doesn't like football. Right. And and I think for me, the fact that I didn't like it never had any bearing on the career path. And it was only by discovering something that I felt was similarly rigorous, which is what I valued as rigor. Right. It was similarly rigorous, yet a lot more fun. It's like I could trade into the more fun thing as long as it was as as rigorous as this other thing. Right. That's that's what gave me permission to do something I enjoyed was it was still hard. Wow, that's a psychology. You know, it's so interesting. A lot of people that I talk to, they they're not number one at what they're doing, and they don't know how to get out of it, and they sort of stay in it, right? And then all of a sudden, later, like years later, they figure out what that you know sort of fun thing could be that also goes along with the rigor. 
it's very interesting to be so good but hate it. That's that's uh that's a new one for me. Uh I never lasted that long. Uh I also have a you know ADD, but that's my problem. But that, <laughs> that, that's that's something. That's that's definitely something. So all right. So you thought work was this crazy thing when you were younger. What what did you like? Like what passions did you have? What were you interested in? You know what were you driving your parents to let you do? You know I love playing soccer. So it's World Cup season right now. So I'm okay. I'm in heaven. Um, I love playing soccer. I loved acting, you know, theater was always really fun for me. And yeah. you're going to, you're going to think I'm a nerd here, but I'm going to, you've created a safe enough environment that I can be nerdy. I loved poetry analysis. Wow. I, I loved, uh, even listening to music lyrics Bob Dylan's, you know, one of my heroes and he's a poet, right. And poetry analysis. I think my, my suspicion is we love what our teachers love. And, you know, because there's some teachers who are just phoning it in, they don't love it. And I think we, it's that passion is contagious and apathy is contagious, right? And I, I can't help but wonder whether the things we love, if we trace the kind of the, the family tree back, it's because someone who taught it to us loved it too. And for whatever reason, my literary analysis professor, Mrs. Cook in Louisville High School, home of the fighting farmers, 5A state champs in football, multiple yeah. times in the 90s. She loved poetry analysis. And I graduated from Louisville High School loving poetry of all things. Wow. So mate, listen, that's why it probably was a little easier for you to write a book, but you know, that's just, you know, it, it, it's amazing what we gravitate to, but you're right. You have to have a mentor or someone that it's almost like you're saying like their energy creates you to be infectious with what they're doing. And then totally. you try it. And yet some, hey, some things you might like, some things you might not like. Right. Right. So, right. so you would describe yourself as a kid. Then you're saying a nerd. Is that what you, you, you totally. You, oh, I loved yeah. reading. If I could just, if I could just burrow away in a stack of books, I'd be a happy camper for a long time. It's part of actually, I feel, you know, I've, I've been blogging every day now for, for a while, um, more difficult in kind of book launch season. I would say I've been blogging every week now for the last couple of months, but ordinarily yeah. it's every day. And that's actually a phenomenally helpful, almost counterbalance to my voracious consumption of information. Because if I was left to my own devices, I just read and read and read and read. And the fact that I have set for myself a quota of every weekday, I want to share some nugget that I've learned. It's a helpful um, escape valve. Because otherwise, I'd just keep consuming, and I would probably become intellectually obese. And there's something about that act uh, the, of of sharing and synthesis that's actually it's like exercising. If if you think about reading as consuming, yeah, writing is almost like exercising to me. Well, listen, I think anything you get good at, you practice, but you still want you know you got to stay there when you don't like it as much, right? You got to keep moving yeah. through it. Yeah. Which is uh, all right. So, OK, you loved reading. And, you know, if you look at some of the most successful people that we read about, you know, Sam Zell and others, most of the day they spend reading. Right. Because mm -hmm. they let the information come and that's where they get their best ideas. So I, I, I believe that's a that's a big thing. You know, people should at least try to do. Yeah. But here you are. You found some passion, but you still went into management consulting. Right. I know. You, wait, I know. The fact that you went into something that every class you hated more than the other, why did you make that decision? I, I think because I, I hadn't had the, I hadn't been enlightened that there was a different way. You know, for me, the only question is what's the best job you can get. That's it. 
It's, it's, and, and as defined by prestige or some other thing, right? So I went to University of Texas. Yeah. Most finance or finance, however you want to say it, uh, majors go into investment banking. Okay. So the best of investment banking jobs would be, you know, Goldman or, or JP Morgan, something like that. Right. Yep. Well, the only thing that everybody acknowledged was better than investment banking was management consulting, not because it's better objectively, but because there's fewer positions, right? At least it, when I was in school, there were a bunch of investment banks. And while there's some kind of hierarchy, it's all that's all within the investment banking band of prestige. Well, management consulting, at least at the big three or four, you got BCG, Bain, and McKinsey, that was perceived as more prestigious. And because McKinsey didn't recruit at the University of Texas, you know, we're, the Longhorns aren't good enough, at least at the time, <clears throat> BCG was at least to my mind, as far as kind of the 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 water cooler talk of prestige, it was the single best job I could get out of school. So I went after it and I got it. Not because I was compelled by it or because I was uh, going to be good at it or because I was interested, but because it was the best. And the only barometer of success I had was, is it the best? And why? Why did you think that like did something was instilled in you when you were younger? Like, why did you think that way? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, I think in my home, it was a Protestant ethic. My dad was a preacher, actually. Yeah. Okay. And I think there's this there's this notion of excellence. You want to do the very best. And I think there's I didn't appreciate the difference between your best and the best. And I would say we should seek to do our best. But what is my best may not be your best. Yep. And it, man, what's my best may not be the best, but it's, it's the best for me. And so for me, I was operating probably more from the paradigm of what's the best rather than what's my best. I never thought about it right now until right now. Well, that's good. Listen, I think uh, that's what happens when you're younger, right? We're influenced by who's around us. And that's what makes, you know, what you're doing at the D school, which we'll talk about and what you do for, you know, so many people, which is give them different ways to think, different ways to appreciate, right? Different ways to, to look at things, totally, uh, totally. Which, which is important. All right, so how long did you stay at this management consulting thing then that we know you hated? Yeah, well, so I did it for a summer. Okay. And then I accepted a full-time offer to return. So I knew I didn't like it. To say hate's a strong word. I mean, I, I, I don't feel I'm, I'm, I'm being John Schultz, I'm, you know. No, no, it's fine. No, and I, say, I probably said it too, but, uh, you know, that's... Uh, we can use it for the point of parody. I did it yeah. for a summer and I knew I already disliked it enough, probably not to continue. And yet I accepted a full-time offer despite the fact that I knew I didn't like it. Why? Cause it's the best, <laughs> right? You got to do the best. Yep. And then here's the irony. After two more years, there were some things I did enjoy about it. There are people that I really enjoyed. There were some projects I worked on that I enjoyed, but generally I didn't feel like I am, I'm coming alive here. I felt like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing a job. Right. right. And at the end of those two years, what most people do is they go to business school. So I applied to business school, applied to the best school I could, which was Stanford, got in. And then they said, okay, if you want to, you can come back here afterwards and we'll pay for your business school. Now, knowing what I already knew, I said yes. Which just adds to the intrigue of the John Schultz tension, yes. the line of tension you're building here. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, right? Like, right? Because he, here you are. All right. So you you did that. Then what happened? Well, the the time in business school thankfully derailed my life. 
and the time in specifically in the D school. So I had, I had a, a mind that at some point I would transition from management consulting whenever I made enough money that I would then go into economic development. When I was in uh, undergrad, I had spent a summer in Bolivia working in a, you know, incubator at, inside of a university. Um, after undergrad, I spent the summer in Zambia working in an AIDS orphanage. And I felt like between my experiences in Zambia and Bolivia, I believed in the power of entrepreneurship and economic development to lift people out of poverty. And I thought at some point I want to do that. So whereas for most people in business school, the summer that they spend um, is a really important summer to facilitate a transition or an inflection point in their career. Right. For yeah. me, because, because I knew, quote unquote, knew I'm going back to consulting. I thought, well, this is kind of a gimme. I can do whatever I want this summer. I have much, I can be much more liberal in my pursuit. So I ended up, um, I ended up at a startup in Delhi, India, and it fits some criteria I had in my mind. I hadn't spent time in Asia before. I wanted to do that. I hadn't been at a startup environment. I wanted to do that. And I went there and it's actually there. And I'm, you know, the typical business analyst, I'm running, you know, pivot tables, doing spreadsheet analysis, things like that. Yeah. Yep. And, but down the hall, there's these folks called designers who are working with foam core, who are spending the night in the slums, who are talking to our customer, who was a typically a, a mother or father who lived off the electrical grid, who's burning kerosene in their home, which is terrible for indoor air quality and safety yep. and things like that. And we're selling solar powered lighting systems to them. And these designers are going in and they're not just, you know, designing new lights, they're finding new problems to solve. And I was fascinated by what these guys did. So I'm just poking my head in their design studio all the time. And after a while, they started saying things like, you know, you're kind of de-schooly. And I would say, what's de-schooly? You know, you're de-schooly. I thought that was an insult. And they said, no, no, it's cool. It's it's this place at Stanford. It's this new place. At the time, it's a couple of years old. It's this new place at Stanford where folks like you, kind of MBAs who misfit, black sheep kind of people who don't fit in, which, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I was the best. I did all the best things. I totally fit in, right? Right. But they yeah. had projected on me. You're clearly unhappy. You're clearly not doing what you should. You should go to the D school. So when I came back from Delhi, that second year of business school at Stanford, 2008, I immersed myself in design program courses as electives, and it was there when my, you know, carefully laid but perhaps unenjoyable path was totally derailed. I love that. You had to go all the way to India to be enlightened, right? That's Which, just like Steve Jobs, right? I, I think that I think that's amazing. But like what you had the courage to do that. I mean, mm. you know, not everybody would. So I, I think that's that's terrific. So what ingrained assumptions did you have about your life then at that moment that changed? Like ha, like what was the bus through? Because you could go look at that place down the hall and not actually do anything about it. So what happened from there? You know, I, I would say uh, one of my mentors has a phrase that I really like, clarity emerges. And so it's not that I saw all the way down the path. It was that I was, I was just, I was beckoned one more step. Yeah. And so that my life has been this kind of series of almost beckoning. Hey, it's almost like someone's, hey, come over here. Yeah. Try over here. You know, and I just, for whatever reason, I've just been a little bit vulnerable to that weird whisper. Hey, come over here. And so it's not like, you know, when I, when I went, when I ultimately accepted a, what began as a one-year appointment now, which is 13 years later, I haven't left. Right. But when I accepted the one-year appointment, it was a job that was less what? than 50% what I was going to make back in my consulting firm. Yeah. So it's totally crazy. You know, it's totally, uh, it doesn't make any sense. 
And then when, it, when after that year, I was extended an opportunity to start running a major program, I was still going to be making half of what I, what I would have made if I had gone back. And so there was, there was never a clarity. It was never like there was a big, you know, one of the value propositions of the firm that I was at was uh, economic value propositions was 10 X in 10 years. In 10 years, you will be making 10 times as much money as you're making today. Right. Pretty good value prop. Right. Yeah. Um, there's no promise like that in academia, none whatsoever. It was, yeah, we don't really know how, if we're going to have budget, you know, it's right in the middle of the, you know, the housing crisis. Right. Yeah. I don't know if we can even pay you. Right. Um, and so, but my wife and I, you know, we're actually people of faith. I, I don't, I'm not, I don't subscribe to a faith system that guarantees, you know, wealth. So I want to say that right off the bat, yeah. but that be, uh, Siri said, I don't know how they respond to that. That's funny. Um, but uh, I would say not believing, you know, from a faith perspective, believing that we're going to get rich. My wife and I, when we were trying to make this decision, I remember distinctly, we would walk around our neighborhood and we'd pray together and we'd say, what we're seeking to know what is God. We believe that God right. has a will for our lives. Yep, what is yep. your will? You yep. know? And so we would walk and we'd pray and we're renting, you know, this like overpriced little studio apartment in Palo Alto and trying to weigh the merits of, do I stay here where there's no money? Do I go back where there's lots, but it's miserable. Like, what do I do? And, you know, we felt again, not clarity, but a little bit of leading a little bit of um, liberty, so to speak, to continue down this kind of unconventional path. And it's never, it, there were no outcomes guaranteed, but it ended up being a delightful kind of discovery process along the way. So is this an example? I, I heard you say this, the way you worked was more important than what you did. Is that, is that an example of this that, yeah. you know, how did you learn the, the way you work was more important than what you did? Is, is that what this is for you or no? Yeah, totally. And I think that's also, that's, that's an allusion to the design process as well. Whereas what I do is about my title and my employer and that sort of thing. What, the way I'm working, you know, I discovered at the D school an approach to problem solving, which we've tried to somewhat um, uh, memorialize in the book. It's, it's a way of approaching problems. And the way you approach a problem is actually much more important than the problem you're working on. Because the reality is, there, there's no shortage of problems we're going to be facing. Right. And ultimately what we want to do, what I want to do is solve the problem of solving problems. And as long as solving problems is a problem, that's a problem. But, and it's not going away and that is not going away, but that's the, I think that's the fun of what all of our careers are made of. I mean, totally, totally. You know, when I get that call that I got to fix something to get something done or closed or move forward when I'm done with that call, as much as it doesn't feel good all the time, I feel like, well, one more way to get through something, one more way to learn how to do it. And I don't know. That's what makes yeah. me me. Uh, yeah, that's great. That's so great. You're, you're still there. Adrenaline. 17, was it 17 years you're still there? 13 years. 13, 13 years. years. Amazing. I guess you obviously love it because you're still there. Uh, what kept you there? Because, okay, it's one thing to say, I'm going to do this. It was your passion. You know, I give you credit for going and doing that after, you know, so long, just trying to, you know, do what was best, but not maybe best for you. Yeah. What, what, what's kept you there? Well, the opportunity to work with world-class students and organizations, it's really invigorating to get to 
contribute to uh, the growth trajectory of it. I mean, you're seeing these students and you have the ability to really shape their trajectory. I mean, it's really remarkable. I would say, you know, this is, I don't know when this podcast is going to be released, but I'm actually in the process of a transition right now. So you're saying you're still there. I'm still there kind of, right? And by the time maybe people listen to this, I actually may not be. I'm, I'll continue wow. to teach. Teaching is always going to be a part of my life. I mean, right. hopefully I, I love yeah. it. I, but I would say I'm starting to experience some diminishing returns of um, it's it's kind of becoming a little too easy to me. I want a new challenge. Good I don't feel you. the learning curve is as steep. And I'm not at a point, there, there may be a point in one's career, right, where that kind of plateauing of the learning curve is appropriate and fitting. I feel personally, I would like to be on a little bit steeper curve, which is a little scary and which is a little nerve wracking, but it's also... I feel I, I'm starting to feel that kind of whisper again. Hey, come over here. And <laughs> it's that. just as uncertain, by the way, as it was 13 years ago. Good for you. And we'll talk about that. Uh, but I want to first start with this. I, I'm looking at idea flow. Lo I love the logo. It's really cool. Cool. Like Thank mom, you. Right. Like, like waves right. Uh, of ideas. Very cool. Good graphics. What made you write this book? Obviously, you have 13 years of all this energy and amazing people you were with, right? Ideas flowing. Uh, this D school sounds so cool. I guess it's like a collaboration cross departmental thing, right? Where you get right. everyone working to all these smart people. Like, yeah, I mean, the D school has got, you know, business school, law school, medical school, engineers all coming together in this melting pot to solve wicked problems that don't fit that. in any one of those buckets, right? So that's, that's the environment we're in. The reason we wrote the book, well, a couple of things. One, I would say there's this old cliche, write the book you want to read. And I felt there's no book that really encapsulated what we're teaching and, and what we're emphasizing in the world. There's a lot of books on innovation. And I would say innovation generally is this incredibly hyped phenomenon. You can't find an organization that says innovation is not important to us. Everybody's got it in their seven strategic pillars, right? And yet for all the hype, it's totally undernourished and under-resourced as a capacity, as an ability. So that's kind of one thing that we saw is there's there's a huge delta between the level of hype and the level of rigor and practice in organizations. Um, like, and then the other like thing innovation, is innovation, right? Like what is it right? Like what does it even mean, right? To innovate. You know, I, I was actually in a meeting yesterday, and I'm, you know, we're we're sitting around the table and like we're talking about innovation and they're like, well, how do you innovate? I'm like, well, make one little thing better at your job. Mm, like mm, one little thing yeah, that yeah. maybe no one would say or do or make happen. You go make happen. You don't have to be Einstein, right? So is that right. sort of the premise of what you're saying or? Well, yeah. I mean, the reality is there are problems everywhere, right? And when, when we, when people think about innovation, they think of the iPod or they think of, you know, um, Amazon or Airbnb, right? right? Which is great, which are innovations, but they're the product of a certain way of thinking that's as relevant to um, crafting an email or giving feedback or a sales pitch or delivering consequences at home. You know, I just had a parenting situation where I brought innovation thinking to bear on, I have four daughters. How right. do we handle this, this disciplinary situation, right? The, yeah. the creativity is the art of solving problems. And sometimes the problem is what's our next big product we should launch or the next service that we should launch. But sometimes the problem is how do we, how do we improve the expense reimbursement process? 
And that's every bit as worthy of a candidate of innovative thinking. And there's this, there's a lot of mythology when it comes to creativity and innovation. You know, you have people say there's, there's creative organizations or creative industries, or there's the creative department, or there are creative people. And this whole kind of bifurcation of the world is nonsense. It's, it's, it's not helpful and it's not useful. And as long as people can opt out or self unidentify creativity is not for me, then what they're saying is problem solving isn't for me. I don't need to solve problems in my life to which I, I don't think anybody would agree. Everybody's got problems, but they don't realize that creativity is the art of solving problems. And when they do, all of a sudden, the, no, the number of tools that open up to them to make improvements or to solve problems, dramatic, the, 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 the tool set increases dramatically. Well, because think about it, right? When you're grateful, you can't be unhappy. You just can't. If I, if I sit here and just start riffing off, well, I'm grateful to be on this podcast with you. I'm grateful that I can go home and eat dinner tonight. So problems and creativity clash in my mind a little bit, like, like for most people, when you're in fear, it's hard to be creative. How do you unlock that? Does idea flow teach us that? Or do you feel that's not a real thing? That's just my, my head. No, it's a cool, it's a cool challenge. Here's, here's how I would resolve that seeming kind of paradox. Here's what we know about problems or, or solutions. The fitness of a solution the single greatest variable that determines how good a solution is, is actually how many solutions you generate. So Dean Keith Simonton, you just won a lifetime achievement award from Mensa, the organization that awards IQ points, studied yes. breakthrough problem solving across domains. And what he found was a person's likelihood to solve a problem is the, the, the variable that was responsible for the most efficacy in solving problems was how many ideas they came up with, how many solutions they came up with. So does that mean not being afraid to fail each time your idea goes out or? Like, well, right? even, even less than that, like it's like constantly it's even, trying and failing, or is that how you have to look at it or no? And not even failing, but just like, am I willing to say something that seems stupid or think, forget, say, am I willing to think something that seems stupid? You know, we have, <clears throat> we have very, very narrow bands of tolerance. And what we know is ideas are naturally occurring phenomena. What does that mean? They're normally distributed. So if you go back to kind of college statistics class and you think of a bell curve, ideas fall on a bell curve. And so if you think about your, the, the, um, the quality on that bell curve, there's some on the right-hand side of the distribution that are really good. There's some on the left-hand side of the distribution that are really bad. And then there's a bunch in the middle that are kind of ordinary. Well, in order to get really good outcomes, high variability, the way to, the way to get to really good right-hand side is to allow yourself to go really bad left-hand side because you can't create an asymmetric distribution. Nobody just thinks of good ideas. You have people who are narrow in their thinking and have a bunch of ordinary ideas, or you have people who are expansive in their thinking and have both more good ideas and more bad ideas. Quintessential example is Steve Jobs, right? Okay. When we think of Steve Jobs, we don't think what an idiot. You might disagree with his management style or personality or whatever, right? But nobody disagrees. He's responsible for a great deal of innovation in the world today. Well, how did he do it? 
what Sir Johnny Ive said when he gave his memorial address at Steve Jobs' funeral was Steve and I would sit down for lunch every day. And every day, Steve would say to me, hey, Johnny, you want to hear a dopey idea? And Johnny said most of the time they were pretty dopey. In fact, sometimes they were truly terrible. But every once in a while, they take the air out of the room and leave us breathless in wonder. Right? They sure the point did. is, right? Yep. It's about variability, right? Yep. You go, I only want iPod ideas. I go, well, where are your dopey ideas? And who's the person you're regularly sharing ideas that are dopey with? And that's what people don't get. That's what Steve Jobs got is variation is critical. So going back to this idea of problem solving, you got a problem. Is there any instinct towards quantity? Almost always we're thinking, what is the answer? That's our default posture, right? And yet we're, you and I aren't mathematicians, which is to say what? We're not, a, we're not addressing problems that have one right answer. In math, maybe, even though mathematicians say there's more than one right answer, right? But in math, you got a problem that's got the answer. In problems that we're facing in life, how do I deal with the fact that my kids broke a 115-year-old window in the house? Is Well, if my default mindset is what's the consequence, right. then I'm hemming and hawing in the kitchen with my wife. When I go, you know what we need? We need to come up with like 10 possible consequences just to kind of like, just to be expansive in our thinking. By the way, number 10 was the best one by far. Right. Okay? But I actually, but the point is I have this instinct. Right to generate like volume first. And yep. the truth is there's zero cost to generating a third and fourth and fifth and sixth idea. The only cost is to, it's actually, to, it's a cognitive bias. It's called the Einstein effect, the tendency to be fixated on a solution. But the other, the, the reason for the Einstein effect is because of what a guy named uh, Ari Kruglowski identified as the longing for cognitive closure. It turns out things being unresolved is, is psychologically distressing to us. So the cost, when I said the cost of coming up with a third and fourth idea is low, it's true, you know, economically, there's no cost to it. Where there is cost is psychologically, I've got to keep telling myself I haven't solved the problem yet, which is distressing because my longing is for the problem to be solved. Well, but that's, and that's what I was saying, I guess, at the beginning of what we said, when you're in fear and, un, you know, if, you, if this effect is real, you sort of can be deer in the headlights when it comes to solving solutions, right? Totally, totally. Which is why it's more fun to, I always say, keep thinking a different way. Like everything you do, look at it in a different way. Every week. That's right? what Einstein Even said. Things are going good because you're better off being creative when you're not in fear and yeah. in clean uncertainty, right? Where you have the odds against you. Then if you're constantly thinking of how to be better when you're actually doing well, does that sort of make sense to you or no? hundred percent. You know, Einstein said, someone asked him once, Hey, how do you, um, how do you, how have you had so many breakthroughs when there's so many scientists with higher IQs than you have? And he said, I take longer on the problem. And they said, what do you mean? He said, I don't think of solutions until I've looked at a problem from seven, eight or nine different ways first. Right. And that's, I think that's, that's a part of what you're getting at. Look at it differently. Look at it differently. And a lot of times we are, we are fixated on this, even the notion, I mean, our whole conversation has been about problem solving. There's a whole, there's a whole kind of stream of thought. There's a chapter in the book on problem finding, problem framing, right? It's not yeah, just I about like solving I like a problem. I, I like that. I like problem finding. Not, not in a bad or negative way. You know, I always want to make, my brain just keeps going, how can I make this more efficient? 
Mm-hmm. How can you change it a little bit to maybe make it better? If you get sort of, you know, sitting in, you know, in your old ways or in your ways, I think then the problems get bigger and, and the solutions you're going to still need as many, but it, it feels, it feels worse, right? It sort of yeah. feels worse. Yeah, that's right. No, the, um, no. one of the, one of the kind of key assignments at Stanford since the 1960s, you'll love this and you already do it. Um, it's called keep a bug list. So it's long before computer programming entered common parlance. It's not about errors in the lines of code. It's about a list of things that bug you, a list of things that bother you. If you keep a bug list, that's rich fodder for innovation because people who are attuned to problems are people who are attuned to solutions. Well, it's and you may want to go create one of those bug fixes, right? Yes, I I love that. I love it. Exactly. So, so is idea flow out in the marketplace or? Yeah. 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 It came out uh, October 25th and um, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting tons of notes from folks about applying the tools and implementing them in their lives and their organizations. And it's incredible to see how people are responding. And how hard was it to write a book? You know, it's, it is a labor of love. um, And I would say it's not hard in the sense that I believe in what I was doing. I, I believe in the the topic and the and the tools. I've seen the impact. And it's fun actually to kind of synthesize in a different way because it's this yeah. whole jambalaya in your mind. And there's a bunch of different ways of framing and describing things. And to be forced to kind of put it in an outline form. And it's it's a really useful exercise. I would say I'd write the book differently now. You know, it'd be a different book now. And the way I talk about it and think about it is different than the way we presented it there. And I never appreciated the extent to which a book, you can think about it. It's like a picture. It's a point in time description of a person's thinking. Yeah. But even as I was reading the audio book, you know, for Audible, I'm like reading the audio book going, oh, I wish we had put a different epigraph there. Or I wish we, you know, because my mind isn't like this book is a reflection. It's a, it's a snapshot of my mind at a certain point of time, but I've continued to learn and grow and acquire information and acquire ways of describing things that when you talk to me and then you read the book, you go, oh, that's not exactly what he said. It's because we're two different people. Yeah. I love how you did the audible yourself because I, I love when someone writes a book that it's the actual author, Yeah, uh, which is tremendous. So good for you. So what, so you said at the beginning, I don't know if you're, you want to say yet, but what's this new thing you're embarking on now? Well, there, there's a couple of things that are really interesting. One of the things I've been working on is a, a software tool to actually support people to diverge. So the, the instinct to generate options is underdeveloped. And so I want to help people develop that. But what I found is if you just say, come up with 10, they go, well, how? But if I say, well, how would Steve Jobs do it? They go, oh, well, he'd do this. How, how would Oprah do it? Well, she'd do this. Well, how would you know Nike do it? Well, they do this. Do you realize you just came up with four ideas? They go, oh, well, I can. So I've been building kind of a chat bot of sorts and to basically facilitate helping people generate more. It's something that you can teach yourself to do. But I find, you know, the other day, again, with this disciplinary thing with my family, I actually opened up the chat bot and I used it to help me just get outside of my head. Cause the truth Listen, is t- tools are great. I mean, you know, mentors, tools, learning about yourself. Uh, I, I think that's the fun of that. That's like the fun of life, right? On right. Right. Like, but then imagine by the way, you're an enterprise and a thousand of your employees are using this tool. Imagine the kind of data you get. 
like unbelievable data, right? I, so yeah, I know what problems people are facing. Is, is I know solutions. Talking to it or is it yeah. typing in or? Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's it's typing right now. Yeah, but you can imagine talking or things like that. But then the data in terms of the problems people are trying to solve, who is streaking? Like, do I want to know if I'm the CEO of you know Schultz Enterprises that John has has done an idea quote of the last ten days? Yeah, I want to bring him into a brainstorm, right? He's been training. Who do I want wow. to run the next leg of the relay? The guy who's been exercising, right? That's pretty so, cool. Yeah. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is I've been working on a radical, you know, novel new venture fund, actually. One of the things I've done in my capacity as the director of executive education is I advise CEOs of companies on growth and innovation strategy. And one of the things I've identified, along with a couple of really sharp partners, is this realization that enterprises often develop solutions to problems they experience, but that they can't sell in the market. Because they're, you know, so classic canonical example is restaurant company develops a simple software to help their servers deal with um, dividing up tips at the end of the night. Well, that's a great solution they've created for themselves and it works for their 300 restaurants and their 30,000 employees. Well, you know, who else needs that is every other restaurant, but the, the market, what the market says is you can't sell an enterprise software. You're a restaurant. Your job is to come up with a holiday cocktail. You know, and if the restaurant tries to, you know, um, sell the product, they get punished, actually. And this is this is a common theme we're finding. Enterprises are solving novel problems for themselves that they can't commercialize. And so our venture fund creates a mechanism to enable enterprises to commercialize the solutions they've created but can't monetize There's themselves. There's got to be so many of those sitting around in so many different companies. I mean... If you look at Amazon, they did it, but commercialized it, right? Totally. Yeah. Very few CEOs have the mandate of Jeff Bezos, which is, you know, whatever you, you know, not whatever you want, but you can enter lots of spaces that seem unrelated and we'll see how it goes. Right. They have to be way more kind of focused. You can't do that. You know, I heard a, a, um, a, a manufacturing executive say the other day, they built a very interesting piece of diagnostic, a tool that does diagnostics on an assembly line. He said they actually tried to sell it to another manufacturing company. And the market said, you can't sell, you're not an engineering company, you're a manufacturing company. And so they shelved it. And now it's just sitting on the shelf and it does the job for them. It's brilliant. There's there's hundreds and probably thousands of those things sitting all over the place. Your your goal will be, how do you access it and find it and get people to actually think about it in a different way, right? right. Use the idea flow concepts to actually say, all right, so if we can't solve for us, let's like, you know, off, offshoot it. But, th- but that, that, that's going to be a fun journey for you. That yeah, sounds it's, exciting. It's radically different. And yet it is a very natural evolution. Everything's it's been born out of relationships that I've had and observations I've made. And it's really fun to actually kind of get on the field, so to speak, as a teacher, you're almost more like a coach, but then raising a fund, it's like, oh, I got to suit up and put on, I got to start. Well, I got somebody, you, you had that whisper. Somebody, you, you're getting another whisper. There you Exactly. Which I'm so happy for you. Thank you. Uh, and this was great. So they, we can buy your book everywhere, right? Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, website everywhere you, you buy fine literature, you can buy it. And if folks want to, if they want to check out, we've got a free uh, bonus chapter on the website. Ideaflow.design is a website. If you okay. go there, there's a bonus chapter called how to think like Bezos and jobs. Oh, good. And it's about that. kind of mental tricks and habits of those two breakthrough thinkers. We observed seven things that we felt they're repeatable, they're learnable, repeatable ways of thinking 
that anyone can incorporate into their life. I love that. So I'm excited for you. Uh, it was so good doing this. I, I appreciate you coming on to the podcast. Thank you very much. My pleasure. This was fun and uh, we'll see you soon. Yeah, I look forward to it. Have a good one, John.